Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Play to pod. Good morning from London, Play to Podders. This is Dr. Ruth Ben Owen with episode four of Play to Pod series two. In this week, we are talking to Naomi Ched, who's worked with parents of children with autism and other developmental delays in various roles as a diagnostician and as a therapist. She's a great friend of mine and of Blue Sky, and she's a colleague of Dr. Karen Levine, um, who she's co-authored three books with. She's the co-author and co-creator of the Replays model that we discussed in episode three, and she's also written two other books with Karen, which we also spoke about previously. And this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the second book that Karen and Naomi wrote about planning treatment programs for children with autism. We also speak about what hurts and what helps um, post-diagnosis for parents, And um, we talk about lots of other things. And one of the big takeaways from this episode is, again, about trying to find the laughter and having fun with your child. And that sometimes you just need to stop and play that air guitar. Yeah. Okay, so today I'm going to be speaking to Naomi Angov-Ched. She is a licensed mental health counsellor and licensed and board certified behaviour analyst over in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Naomi works with a range of populations um did used to work with much younger children is now working with individuals from across the lifespan and a little bit more work now with older children and adults um and Naomi you've co-authored three books on autism haven't you yes um I've co-authored with Karen Levine um who is a psychologist um, who lives and works well she used to live and work locally Uh, But we've worked together since um, I started um, interning at Children's Hospital in the mid-90s. That was 100 years ago now, it seems like (laughs) yesterday. And we've written um, three books, one called Replays, which is um, a play-based book for for working with children with uh, young, very young children with autism. Um, The second one was um, on, I guess this was the second one, Treatment Planning for Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders, which I think we're going to talk about a little. And another mm-hmm. was on um, specifically on targeting uh, anxiety in children, um, primarily with autism, but not exclusively, because a lot of these techniques can be used and these approaches can be used um, uh, successfully with children with and without autism. Mm-hmm. And we're great fans of your work and Karen's work on anxiety and, and using therapeutic play techniques to support young children who are experiencing the anxiety as part of their developmental challenges. And we are going to be speaking to Dr. Karen Naveen on this series as well. Um, so I was quite interested, though, in the treatment planning for children with autism book that you guys wrote and just wondered what were your key motivations for writing on that topic? Because obviously the US and Massachusetts particularly is actually quite good gold, gold standard for autism treatment. So what was your kind of main motivation for that book? Yeah, I think our motivation was over the years we've worked um, together with a variety, Karen and I have worked with a variety of children, and there are so many different approaches to working with children. And, you know, as you hear 
every child, if you meet one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, It's every child is very different and has a different set of challenges. And certainly you can generalize about some of them. Um, A lot of kids have trouble with communication and speech and play skills, eye contact, repetitive behaviors, et cetera. Um, which is what usually earns them the diagnosis to begin with. But really, their profiles are so, so different. And we just felt that one size does not fit all. And Mm -hmm. one approach does not really apply to every single child. And we really found that we were most successful. I found that I'm most successful dealing with um, children. If I kind of use a cafeteria style and pick and choose the things that really work for them. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people would um, probably criticize that and say, you know, you're not you're not using techniques with fidelity. You're not, you know, using one straight and narrow technique. But I feel like um, that's not how it works. Um, you you can't just take a treatment and try to fit a child into it. You have to take the child and fit the treatments yeah. that um, really really apply to their specific needs. And this also changes over time. So you really have to look at it as a, a continuum and as a flexible um, a, a flexible approach to working with children. And, you know, you do, I mean, simply put it, you do what works for them. Yeah. And it's about the child, isn't it? And I think that's the thing it with is. autism. Autism seen as this, you know, umbrella term for lots and lots and lots of different challenges that some children share and some children don't share those even though they get the same diagnostic profile um and we've seen that a lot and we would say cafeteria style works really well or we call it a toolbox as well um so just being trained in a range of different approaches and knowing their evidence base as well so you're still working in some kind of way with science um that you're ensuring that the child is getting the best possible therapy model or therapy approach for them because it's unique to to their needs um, so yeah, I I did uh, as you know we met in Massachusetts when mm-hmm. I was in uh, thesis hell I think <laughs> yeah. when I was at the beginning yeah. of my my research and my doctoral thesis was looking at the experience of parents in Massachusetts and in Central Scotland as a comparative study um, you know looking at parents of very young children who had just been diagnosed with autism and how they perceived that how they perceived autism how they perceived their child how their aspirations were affected by diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I found um, was that the parents in Massachusetts clearly had services and the parents in central Scotland and UK wide pretty much is the same, didn't really have a very clear pathway. Um, so that's that's what, what was a big finding in that thesis was the fact that having a pathway and having services helped parents process the diagnosis right, and, right. and have you know more of an objective view on on what was going to happen with their child and whereas people that don't have services don't have a clear pathway they they will go down the google route and as you said with your book you know one of the motivations was because there's so many things out there and I mentioned in my trailer for the podcast that I'd googled autism the other day and it was 193 million hits just in one google um so it's 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 crazy um so what kind of services do families in Massachusetts get at the beginning of everything so when they first start to have concerns about a child that may have autism yeah I mean I'm glad you asked that because uh, you know some of um, and we can talk later about this but I would say a parent's one of a parent's I don't want to say worst nightmares, but biggest fears is that their child will receive a diagnosis of autism. And I worked for many years in a diagnostic clinic and actually did deliver a diagnosis to many, many children mm-hmm. um, over the years. And um, 
but the good news, I mean, the bad news is you don't ever want to get a diagnosis of anything wrong. The good news is, is that once you do, you really plug into a whole system that provides you with um, supports and services that you can't get otherwise. You can't get, even if your child has, you know, maybe some slight um, symptoms that might suggest something. Um, in the old days, you could provide services, you could recommend and um, services for a child who had, um, who was at risk, we would say mm -hmm. at risk for, for autism because of one or two symptoms, such as repetitive behaviors or lack of eye contact. But mm -hmm. now, really in the past, I would say 10 years, we haven't been able to provide services for those kids. But once you get that firm diagnosis, you know, this child has autism spectrum disorder, you immediately are plugged into an early intervention program and you're entitled to, um, or you qualify for, entitlement is a big, you know, big controversy about that, that word, but you qualify for um, intensive services that can range mm -hmm. from um, as few as, you know, three or four hours, if that's what fits into your schedule, and as many as 20 in some cases. And often, I would say not exclusively, but often those services um, include um, applied behavior analysis, mm -hmm. ABA, which is a very big, um, you know, there are regional differences in this country. It's yeah. a big country, but um, ABA is generally covered by most insurance plans. And ABA is a huge term. It's a big blanket term that covers a lot of different types of services. But if those services can be um, classified as ABA, then you immediately get those services for your child, which um, include uh, often home-based visits by mm -hmm. a qualified, we hope, and experienced um, provider. And it varies, of course. Um, delivered by an agency that um, you know that trains their uh, providers, and they come to your home, or they can come to your play group and an early intervention program, or they can come to a grandmother's house or a babysitter's house, um, and provide those direct one-to-one -one services for the child um, that really target their specific needs and deficits. And so it's a really good thing um, to get a diagnosis if you're looking at mm -hmm. um, in terms of services that are provided. Um, you also can get a, um, visits by a variety of other providers. You might qualify for speech and language therapy. Mm -hmm. You might qualify for occupational therapy, um, even physical therapy, and what we call a developmental educator, somebody who just comes in and talks with the parents, parent or parents, um, or caretakers about the child's needs and, you know, how mm -hmm. to structure, structure the environment and design play routines and things along those mm -hmm. lines. So there's a whole variety of services that you are eligible for once you get that diagnosis. If you mm -hmm. don't get that diagnosis, you're going to um, struggle for yeah. those kinds of services. It's very diagnostic specific and it's regulated it is. and, and kind of um, influenced and driven by insurance companies and by, it is. Well, by the kind of legislation that's in the States and especially Massachusetts, is it mandatory for autism services after diagnosis? Um, there's an insurance Law, yes, yes, no. there is an insurance law that, that kicks in immediately. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to fight for them. Sometimes you will call your insurance company and they'll say, huh, you know, I don't know anything mm -hmm. about this. And you just you have to ask and sometimes push for the person who manages autism specific services. But once you get to that right person, a whole 
range of services opens to you, um, mm-hmm. including, and, and it's not as important when children are very young, but sometimes you'll qualify for respite services, meaning that somebody can come in and take care of your child, or they yeah. might go to a care center and the parents can go off to a hotel for the weekend. And that mm-hmm. seems like, well, that's an indulgence. Well, it's not. I think it's a matter of self-preservation yeah. sometimes. Um, and yeah. everybody else in the yeah. world that has a child, any kind of toddler, <laughs> would agree yeah. that they would like to be able to go to a hotel yeah. for a weekend and get away from their yeah. screaming two-year-old. Yeah, or um, just spend time with your your other kids who are yeah. maybe feeling a little bit neglected because once that diagnosis does come in, um, a lot of attention. We can talk about this when we talk about parents more, but mm-hmm. a lot of the attention focuses directly on that one child, yeah. and there might be other children involved. So just taking your um, older child for an ice cream and for a walk in the park might be a really important service Mm -hmm. that you want, you know, a really important activity that you want to participate in. Yeah. So So there's a lot of options, isn't there? And I think that's the important part of it. There are options and people do get some level of choice. Although, I mean, I did my research um, quite a long time ago. So it was 2000 and I can't remember. I have to fit in that bit. (laughs) It It was a few years ago. Um, And I've just had a blank because I just had to blank it out because it was just so stressful. Um, But the one really interesting finding that I had in my thesis research when I was interviewing families who were based in Massachusetts was I was quite surprised that some of them actually felt a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of services that they were given and expected to participate in. And I deliberately didn't tell any of my participants at all or any of my interviews about the fact that the parents that I was interviewing in Scotland really didn't have any of these options at all. Yeah. They didn't want to colour the way they spoke to me. So they were very honest and they did say sometimes it's really overwhelming and I don't really want to have to have my child in a 30 hour week programme. I just want to enjoy them and spend time with them. And I feel guilty because of that. And then at the end of the interview, they asked me a little bit more about what happened in the UK. And I told them and they felt awful for saying that. But I was really glad that they were able to to say that because that was something I found really surprising as a researcher and you've done quite a lot of work with parent groups in in kind of post-diagnostic situations so is that something that you found in the work with the parents that you've supported in the in the group settings? Yeah I mean it really varies um, a lot some parents want you know 30, 40, 50 hours a week of services where that's what they want you know they want to do everything they possibly can and um, it can be that can be really overwhelming. And for some parents, it's only three or four hours of direct services a week. They really, as you said, they really want to just enjoy their child and take them to the zoo or take them to the park or take them out for an ice cream. And I, I guess one of my big take home messages would be is um, work with providers who understand your family's needs and also um, uh, for parents to to agree to a program that they really feel they can carry out because, you know, you're going to get a lot of young and sometimes old um, providers who want to do everything for your child. And they're really enthusiastic and they're really zealous about it. And the parents are thinking, you know, yeah, but I have three other kids. I have a job. Um, My husband works, you know, the, the swing shift or the late shift. He's never home. I can't do this. And um, sometimes you can feel guilty about not doing enough. So I guess my, my, message would be is do the program that you feel like you can really carry out and don't agree to anything that you don't feel like you can carry out because um, you're going to feel like a failure and you're not, you know, anything you can do with your child. I mean, some parents have said, what should I do immediately? And my first message is, is 
just play with them or mm-hmm. her. Just go yeah. home and play with them. You know, fool around, have fun, enjoy them, um, laugh, do silly mm-hmm. things, you know, make make cupcakes. Just do something that you enjoy doing with your child. They're still the same child that they were before they got the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be long after these services disappear. So. Yeah. And it is, it's about trying to support parents to find their child's smile, really, isn't it? And trying to find the things that make their child laugh. And that laughter is a very kind of therapeutic thing in itself, just having fun and enjoying your your child. But if you can know that you're doing the right things that are going to support your child to make progress whilst having fun, then that obviously ticks a lot of boxes. When you were working with people at post-diagnosis, what other things apart from talking about the services and and how you know sometimes they can be overwhelming and finding the right provider yeah. what other what other things did you find helped well i guess one of the things i would say is that there's a lot of loss and grief involved when you first get a diagnosis for some people not for everyone but for many people this isn't the child they expected this is not the child that they were prepared for and so it's a real adjustment and it's it's makes perfect sense to really accept that and to understand as a as a as a facilitator as a parent group facilitator um it's really important to to help people work through that at their Mm -hmm. own pace and for some people um it takes a little time and for others it takes a very long time and i would just say i speak as a parent of a child with a disability different disability but a lot of the reactions are the same Mm -hmm. it's a lifelong um condition as a parent. This is not the child you expected. That doesn't mean that you don't love them and enjoy them and really embrace their um, their uniqueness and their individuality and their differences. But things will come up all the time that will remind you that this is a different, this child is different than the one you expected. So I think first and foremost, to really understand that, that there is um, grief and loss involved. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and then I would say, you know, the other hand is to really look at um, the, to help parents to see their child's uniqueness and really enjoy them and, um, you know, look for the for the funny and um, unusual things about their child and appreciate those as well. Um, I'd say another big thing to think about and that I've noticed over the years is the way men and women deal with the difference with 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 the diagnosis can be quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I remember working with one family and the mother, uh, the, the mother in this family told me that she just felt like her husband would, has checked out. He hasn't really dealt with this. He won't talk about it. He won't, um, he doesn't want to come home. He doesn't want to interact with the child. She was very disappointed in the way he responded, whereas she was jumping into, she was one of um, a parent who wanted to do as much as she could and go to play groups and go to occupational therapy and mm-hmm. go to, you know, parent groups. And she felt that he was just checked out. And yet she came home one day and he was in the backyard building a little playhouse for the child. He mm. was constructing a playhouse that had a little ramp. The child wasn't walking it. that had a little ramp. So the child who was um, over three could, um, could wheel up in, in their adapted stroller. And so this is this was something that was, I think, really interesting and really important to point out is that sometimes um, men, sometimes it might be the woman in the family who wants to solve the problem. The father yeah. was looking for ways to solve a practical problem, building mm-hmm. a playhouse, putting a ramp in, and the mother was looking more for, um, you know, kind of an emotional connection and to talk about 
the diagnosis and how difficult that was for her and her family. Mm -hmm. Um, So people deal with it differently, but then she really grew to appreciate, you know, this is what he's doing for our child and this is what I'm doing. Um, So that was, I think, you know, to really realize that people and there sometimes are differences between how um, a mother and a father might deal with, um, Mm -hmm. or even in the same sex couple, different partners deal with it in in different ways and to accept that. Yeah, and it's personality, isn't it? Some people want to work through and talk through their emotions and, and kind of put it out there. And other people internalize a little bit more and, and they try and solve it through the practical things like building right. a playhouse or right. um, trying to find toys and games that their child's going to really enjoy. Yeah. So if you if you had advice for people that are in the UK that have less access to things like services yeah. <laughs> and groups, and support groups. I mean, in Scotland, we've always been very lucky. We had a, a waiting room that became this great family yeah. support room because <laughs> everyone yeah. just talks to each other. And then COVID happened. So that doesn't happen as much anymore at all. Um, London's always been slightly different just in the way that the building was planned out. But, you know, sometimes people don't have access to others and other people to support them and to talk things through. What kind of practical advice could you give to a parent that was in the early stages of just receiving their child's diagnosis of autism and really didn't have a pathway forward. So somebody that maybe wasn't getting access to services had maybe been given a couple of leaflets, which is quite a common occurrence of diagnosis appointments in, in the UK. Any kind of practical advice that you could give? Sure. I mean, I think that part of it now, I mean, it, I guess it's good news and bad news. Um, there are so many online um, opportunities to not only find out information, but to connect with other people um, to go to these virtual groups, virtual groups mm-hmm. of parents, of, you know, of mothers, of maybe single parents, maybe fathers, maybe same-sex couples, maybe, you know, all kinds of different, um, very targeted groups of people. And if you're if you're so inclined to join one of those groups, it's a great place to get support mm-hmm. and a great place to share um, experiences and even share um, experiences with, with good and maybe not so good providers. Um, but I would also caution you, um, you know, your your listeners to take a lot of the criticisms with a grain of salt, too, because mm. uh, one provider might not be a good match for one child, but might be the perfect match for your child. So it's it's, I think, a really good place to connect um, virtually with other people and get mm-hmm. information. Um, that's one thing. And also to try to educate yourself um, about your child's particular needs on you know, as I said before, all cases of autism, all, all diagnostic, um, all diagnoses of autism are so different. So you want to find some sort of common, you want to find a common thread. You want to find information about, you know, ways to stimulate language. And mm-hmm. you might, you know, look up things like that on the internet. I guess everything is kind of on the internet now. But um I would say, you know, do your own research, make your own decisions, but also know that there's a lot of support out there. And there are a lot of people um, who have a lot of families who have kids with autism and um, with other special needs as well. So trying to connect with those people, I think, can be a real lifeline. And Mm -hmm. also, also, if you have kind of a key provider, a real champion for your child, um, that's a place to go. I know in the United States, or at least in Massachusetts, you get a service provider, a service mm-hmm. manager, and that person can be really key in connecting you with other other individuals, other services, um, places that are autism friendly. Um, we have a lot of um, 
sort of indoor play spaces here. Nobody can mm -hmm. go to them now, but we hope they, <laughs> they will in the future, um, you know, that are autism friendly. They have movie, um, movie uh, showings at mm -hmm. actually my local theater here that are autism friendly, like one, one time a day, 11 in the morning, you can go with your child who might be, you know, noisy or not particularly well behaved, um, things like that. Just getting access to um, resources through other people, mm -hmm. I think, is probably my best advice. Um, and also, you know, as I said before, is just one of the best things you can do, whether they call it therapeutic or not, is just play with your kid. Just yeah. hang out and play with your kid. Enjoy them. They enjoy music. Do music. If they enjoy finger painting or, you know, art projects or bubbles, um, engage in that and and really look for that smile and um, just enjoy them, whether you call this autism or call it something else. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think, you know, um, we were talking about this before um, the interview, um, is making sure that everybody's on board with what you are trying to do with your child. So there's that consistency. So, you know, grandparents, siblings, the whole family, mm -hmm. but also schools and, and nurseries and staff, paraprofessionals within the nurseries and schools that the child attends. And I know that you do um, quite a lot of your work as consulting in schools. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was just wanting to know a little bit more about that and the advice that you might give to families that are trying to get professional teams on board and it's maybe not kind of happening in the way that it should? Yeah, that it's pretty hard sometimes to get everyone on board, as you say. Um, yeah, I do consult to schools and I think, I guess the advice I would give to parents is when they have a very young child who's just starting with kindergarten or with um, I guess, what would you call it after kindergarten grammar school or elementary school here? Primary um, school. Primary yeah. school, right. Um, I should know this. My husband's saying <laughs> English. Um, but, um, you yeah, know, when they're starting out, I mean, you go a lot of times when your child is starting out, you go in with a head of steam and you want to ask for everything and you want to ask for, you know, a lot of help and services and one-to-one -one instruction. And um, and that, that makes sense to ask for a lot, but also keep in mind that this is something that this is a long-term relationship. This is a marathon. Mm -hmm. It's not a sprint. And you're probably going to be involved with the school system for a very long time or with a school system for a very long time. So you want to go in with um, certainly with, with your own ideas and your own um, requests, but also realize that you want to be a team player as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're going to be able to get more if you're, pleasant and likable. And I hate to say that really, <laughs> because sometimes you can't be, sometimes you have to really, you know, just be insistent. And actually in the United States, a lot of families do get um, advocates and attorneys to come in and, and fight for services. And that's appropriate sometimes too. But mm -hmm. some school systems are very agreeable um, if you present things in a way that they can understand and feel that they're capable of delivering. Mm -hmm. And if you can get, if you can really create a team and be a, you know, kind of be a team facilitator yourself as a parent, um, you're probably more likely to get more services. And I do work with a lot of families and, um, and work as an advocate often. Um, I call myself a consultant, but um, it really is advocating for that child's services. Yeah. And if you know your stuff, if you have the research and the evidence behind you and you present it in that way, and you know the law, mm -hmm. here that's a big issue, um, you can usually get more than you would have otherwise. And I say that because you're working you're working from a different perspective. You know, parents and 
and families want as much as they can get. And schools want to spend as little as they can, understandably. Mm -hmm. Their budgets mm -hmm. are very low. So really going in with that kind of understanding and sensitivity to their limitations as well will probably get you more. So I guess, you know, the, the message is do your homework mm -hmm. and um, try to present things in a simple and and um, palatable way. And you're mm -hmm. probably more likely to get the help that you need because there's some uh, some a lot of really good people out there who want to help your child. Mm -hmm. They just don't know how to do it because they yeah. have constraints as well. And, and often it's, it's financial. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's the same over here, probably more so. And I think it is skilling up parents to understand the law in both countries. England's different to Scotland. Yeah. But we've yeah. always found, and I go on to meetings quite a lot as an advocate for a yeah. family, and try and sit there and be as nice as possible. <laughs> if you quote the law and you know which page and what yeah. line, sometimes that difference. seems to help a little bit. Yeah, really strange. So in terms of consulting in schools and, and with other professionals, you know, for the last year, um, what kind of <sighs> barriers has the pandemic put in place? Because I know we've been the same we've been all on yeah. screen and there's been some pros and cons definitely it can be really hard I mean a lot of the work that I do um, requires that I observe children on um, and mm -hmm. I'll observe them over zoom or some other um, platform usually it's zoom um, and it's really kind of sometimes you can see a lot and you can see a lot more than the they can see in the classroom but other times there are things that you can't see that are going on um, one child I'm consulting on um, or have been consulting on in the recent past, um, had some very um, repetitive behaviors and self-injurious behaviors. And over Zoom, I couldn't see that underneath um, his desk, he was, you know, he was kind of scratching at his skin until um, mm -hmm. it bled. I couldn't see that. I could only see him at his desk. Mm. So it really does limit how much information that you, you can acquire through Zoom. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that you can see um, because you see the big picture yeah. over over Zoom and the teachers aren't seeing that right in the classroom. So it's been an advantage and also a disadvantage. I, I find, and I don't know if you do too, um, I find it's really exhausting. At the end of a Zoom day, I'm just, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just, <laughs> I'm toast. I am so toasted at four in the afternoon here. It's just, I can't talk to another person. It is really challenging to yeah. be looking at a screen the entire day or for even for a few hours. Mm -hmm. So that I think is a real barrier. Um, it's, you know, it's hard going to these meetings with blocks of people and you're sitting around. And on one hand, I think people are a lot more polite because they don't want to, I don't know, <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> and because they're just kind of sitting there smiling. On the other hand, um, it can be difficult to really communicate and really mm. connect with somebody over the internet over zoom because when you're sitting there in person you're looking around you're having you know you're drinking your coffee you're stretching you're getting up and walking around you're much more natural mm -hmm. um here you're on you're on tv yeah. you know you're and i think that's the exhausting part yeah, yeah. The exhausting part is it? it's a performance isn't it because you can't really turn your camera off when you're working in a professional capacity with children and, and other professionals and it's also hard to read like i say body language and if you've said something that somebody might have gone, oh, I'm not really in agreement with that, but yeah. they're sitting just grinning in front of a Zoom yeah. the camera. Right. But it is funny you say you see more because I've had that a few times on assessments where parents have been telling me, you know, this one one little person I observed for an assessment, parents were saying they don't do any actions on a song, they really don't imitate anything. And then this child is in the background doing head, yeah. shoulders, knees and toes right. on their own. Right. <laughs> I'm going, hmm, if you turn around... <laughs> 
right. And then right. another time a child under two was counting in the background and I could see them like pointing with their finger. Uh, 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 and I'm like, oh, do they count? No. no. <laughs> I think they might. <laughs> right. So it has been quite an interesting, you know, there are things you just don't see. And, you know, some some families, bless them, probably need to put a GoPro on their child to like <laughs> yeah. follow them around the whole house. But there have been some times where it's actually been like, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen a lot more than I would have done had I had been sitting in a room and talking to you and focusing on just you and your child would be being in the other corner playing with the toy and I wouldn't have noticed them counting. Right. The other, the, on the positive side for doing, you know, one-to-one therapy with kids, sometimes that works really well because number one, the kids um, who are, you know, five, six, seven, eight and up are very used to working on computers and playing mm-hmm. computer games. And so they're right there. This is their natural habitat. This is their medium. And so they're, you know, it's like, hi, Naomi. Hi, how are you? You know, they're, they're very excited and happy to be there and they also are happy to be there alone in their room just with Mm. me where you know they're not being their parents aren't looking over their shoulders sometimes Mm -hmm. the parents are there but sometimes we're just chatting alone and they like that um they like being you know they like having that private little time with no distractions they can you know shut themselves in their bedrooms or wherever Mm -hmm. they are and just talk about all kinds of things and on and it's there are fewer distractions and then the other thing is that um for some kids learning in the classroom can be very hard because of very, you know, a lot of kids that I work with are very have hyperacusis, are really, you know, sensitive mm. to sounds and other kids talking and even moving their desks around or the, you know, other noises um, if there's um, construction going on outside. And so if we're just in a very quiet room, they can think better and they can learn better and they can just enjoy the time that's very quiet for them. So they like being alone. And there's mm-hmm. not there's not a lot of pressure to interact with other kids and yeah. do things a certain way. So it's it's got its upside and downside. You know, it's mm. it's it's not completely bad, but given a choice, I'd say I'd like this pandemic to be over. Oh, like yeah. everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the same. I think we're gonna become really isolated and agoraphobic if it doesn't stop soon. Yeah. And that's a that's an important point. Um some of the kids I'm working with I think are gonna have a really hard time um integrating back into yeah. the mainstream and into mm-hmm. schools and into society. Um they're really anxious and really worried and sort of um hypersensitive and really worried about catching not only COVID, but Mm -hmm. anything else. You know, I have one child who, in in the beginning of this, was wearing his mask to bed at night because Mm. he was so worried that he was going to catch something. And so there are a lot of kids with, um, you know, that this is going to have very long-term effects, I think. You know, for some, they're going to be great. And they're going to just say, you know, great, I want to see my friends. Here we go. I can't wait. And for others, it's going to be a much more gradual integration back into society Mm -hmm. I think yeah and for us when we've been working with brand new families and children because we used to do lots of social groups and that was a big big part of our services and we do we've done some online not quite the same you have to make sure everyone's on mute so everyone talks at the same time especially when they're all five um but we've we've felt really strongly that so many of the children that we've just started with have missed out on an entire year of social skills input um and desperately needed it you know and it's you know they're coming up to maybe school and they haven't really had any or any interaction with other children um and it's just really sad I mean it obviously isn't anything anyone can do about it right now but but yeah it's been a whole year missed at least a year for lots of children 
Do you also work with children with Pride of Willie syndrome as well? And that's a special yeah. of yours. So yeah. I just wanted to do a little bit of a, ask you some info about that because that's not something that we know a lot about, though we have worked with some children with that diagnosis. Um, but there's lots of crossovers in the treatment models for Pride of Willie and autism as well, especially in the early years. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, the um, Pride of Willie Association of the UK is a really good organization. And mm-hmm. I went to their uh, virtual conference this year. And um, it's a really good um, support and research organization if you do have any families that, that do have kids with Prader Willi. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a an, an interesting and unusual diagnosis. And I just happened to stumble upon it when I was in training in the mid 90s. And I just thought, well, this is, you know, I like this population. It's fun to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, the, the kids do have a lot of similar and very some very different deficits as well. Um, just for your listeners, um, Prader-Willi is a genetic um, a genetic condition. It's a genetic mutation, a spontaneous mutation that's found on chromosome 15. And it occurs in about one in maybe 14,000 births. So it's not very common. Um, and kids that, that do have Prader-Willi um, disorder is, I guess the one thing that you probably would have heard most about is that these are kids who don't have an ap- any control over their appetite. They're missing the appetite control gene or mm-hmm. the, the, the part of the gene. And so their their appetite is uncontrollable. They'll eat till they'll just keep eating. They don't have a sense of fullness. It's called hypophagia. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things that go along with it um, as well. And a lot of it, um, some for some kids, there's a range, like there is an autism as well. A lot of kids have um, some of the same uh, social and um, communication deficits and really just need help um, learning to play and communicate with other kids. So a lot of the interventions, especially when they're young, as you pointed out, are very similar to kids with autism. And you just want to get them more socialized and mm-hmm. learning appropriate um, social skills and turn taking and listening mm-hmm. and um, just really ha- learning to um, empathize and connect with other children. So a lot of the treatment um, protocols can be very similar to kids with um with autism and very different as well. Um, but I, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting diagnosis to have. And I think, you know, it's, it's something not to be afraid of, but it mm-hmm. is, um, it does take a very um, specialized set of skills to work with kids with mm-hmm. brother Willie and um, you know, the, the, the food uh, security and safety is, is among the biggest, um, mm. but there are a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of mood dysregulation that can go with it along the way and a lot of um, some repetitive behaviors as well. So just, you know, like with anything with autism as well, just understanding what this child is all about really provides you with um, the information you need to develop a good plan Mm -hmm. for them. And still every child is unique and different, even though they may share a similar diagnosis. Yeah, Um, yeah. So I didn't put this into your plan of That's what right. we talked about. That's all right. <laughs> I wondered, and we can edit this bit out. I wondered yeah. if you had like uh, the, the the funniest story, the, the kind of scenario working with family, or if you had a, a really big success story you wanted to share. Boy, I don't know. I mean, I would say uh, funny things happen all the time all the time. And I think, you know, I, I learn more from the kids um, that I've worked with and the families than they've learned from me. And I guess one thing that I just found really helpful, I was working with a little boy who was, I'm just, I'm 
I can think of a few stories, but a little boy who was um, pretty, pretty shut down. He did not want to communicate. He did not want to, you know, he was very anxious. He didn't want to make eye contact. He was one of these kids who was very perfectionist. Everything had to be perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, he just was very tense and shut down. And I remember getting to my office one day and um, I was late. I was very late and I was, you know, in a, in a real hurry to get there. And um, they were there. The family was there when I first got there. And I said immediately, I said, I'm so, so sorry that I was late. But I said, I have to just tell you what happened. I said I was going to, I got up early this morning to go to the gym. And I was taking the trash out too. So I, was, I had my gym bag and my trash bag with me. And I ran out the door and I was going across the street. My gym is about 500 feet from my house. And I said, um, and I got there. And I realized that I'd left my gym bag at the side of the road and had the trash bag with me. And this really got him going. This really got him laughing. This is the first <laughs> time he'd laughed and just howled um, in a way that he never had before. And I realized, you know what, I'm on to something because I was just showing some weakness and some stupid mistake that I made. And he thought it was the funniest thing he ever heard. So that really did happen. But I do have to say that I use that story several other times in my career because um, I think one thing I've learned from kids is they just love to see you make mistakes and they oh, love yeah. to see you be really stupid. And I really did. I got to the gym and I had a, a garbage bag with me rather than my gym bag. So that was one of the that was one of the funniest things that ever happened. Um, <laughs> Did the people I, at the gym notice? Yeah, they did. They knew me pretty well, and they did notice. And it's still something, actually. Um, it's still I still belong to the same gym. And every once in a while, somebody will say, "Remember when you brought the garbage to to the gym?" <laughs> Not in the last year, because I haven't been there in the last year. But yeah, I think that's um, something, and it, it's it's um, it's sort of the basis of what I often tell parents, which is, don't be afraid to let your kids see you make a mistake, and especially mm -hmm. for kids who have this kind of perfectionist tendency. I've told a couple of fathers, I said, let them see you put on the wrong shoes in the morning or two matching, unmatching shoes and tell them, you know, tell your child that you went to work with two unmatching shoes. Because if you, <laughs> their father, their idol can make a mistake, then they can make a mistake. And that's Absolutely. a really, that's a really important message, I think, is let your kids see you be silly, be goofy, make a mistake and then repair it and realize it's not a big deal. You yeah. can do this and you can still go on and, and have a fun day or a fun life. I'm sure if the gym incident happened in um, in England, we would have just pretended that we didn't very, very British and polite and just pretended we'd never, <laughs> seen, we'd never seen you with a garbage bag <laughs> and never talk about it again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there is such a big difference in culture and you, you're kind of in between because you're married to somebody from the UK. So you've kind of got that idea of what we're like. Yeah. <laughs> people like in massachusetts and um east coast is even different from the west coast isn't it because you're from oh the west yeah coast. and every, I'm, i lived on both coasts um yeah. and everything in between is really different too it's a huge country it's i mean i know that in england and i've spent a reasonable amount of time there there's a there are real regional differences yeah. um, my in-laws live in the west country and that's very different than um the people that i know in london mm -hmm. um it's there it's there are differences and the differences are fun um, to, you know, I, I enjoy the differences. Um, this is probably kind of an off-color comment, maybe. Um, you can edit this out. But I, <laughs> but I just remember, you know, in, uh, a long time ago, I was, I was 
very upset about something. I was with my in-laws in England and my, and I probably told you this before, my um, father-in-law, I remember he was, he noticed that I was pretty sad about something. And he said to me, oh, well, you know, you got to keep your pecker up. Well, in, in England, that maybe is an expression that you might use to, you know, kind of keep your spirits up in the United States, or at least where I'm from. That means has a very different, yeah, that means, yep, that means something completely different. I was shocked when he said this to me. So, but we laugh, we still laugh about that in my family. It's still a joke. Is that breakdown in communication? Though you're speaking the same language, there isn't it? And it must be what it's like for some of our children that have the, the kind of social communication challenges just in their everyday life. But yeah. the amount of times I've been to restaurants in Massachusetts and other places in America and asked for water, and they all just don't know what I'm saying. They say, right. "Pardon me, pardon me," pardon me. <laughs> yeah. and I have to go water, and they're like, "Oh, water! water. water. Why didn't you say that?" <laughs> Oh, elevators versus lifts yes, and escalators yep. and oh yeah it's just absolutely crazy um but we are all speaking the same language at the end of the day yep. um but thank you very much for that Naomi is there anything else you wanted to talk about or anything else you wanted um, to add I guess you know and I've said this a million times today but you know finding ways to have fun with your child and a lot of things aren't fun you know a lot of things you're going to say I really this I hate this I'm not, I don't want to do this I had one parent that told me you know she had a service provider who um, told her well every day before you get your child dressed you know do these five things she said if I did those five things before I got him dressed we wouldn't get dressed till four or five in the afternoon and I'd never get my contact lenses in that day or you know, or have breakfast. So, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't fun to do and you can't do them. But if you can find those fun things to do, I remember when, you know, my own, my own little girl, who's not a little girl anymore, um, was very young. And I remember being really exhausted and coming back from a therapy appointment. And I probably had about eight minutes of sleep the night before, and I was just miserable. But I stopped at a coffee shop at a Starbucks to get a, a coffee with her, probably my fifth cup of the day and just went in and sat outside and there was a family with another little boy who was clearly probably autistic um and the 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 two women with him maybe a mother and an aunt were playing air guitars and singing um back in the ussr the beatles song i'm dating myself <laughs> but singing and playing air guitars and jumping around in their seats and i just looked at them and i thought they're having such a good time with this kid and he was screaming and laughter and he was you know, they weren't doing therapy and they weren't learning the alphabet and they weren't drilling them on, you know, numbers or letters. They were just having a really fun time and playing the air guitar. And I just thought that was a really, it just was a reminder to me to just um, stop and smell the roses or stop and play the air guitar. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I think that would be, you know, a big message that I would give every parent if you can on and the other, you know, a lot of parents have a lot of, they might be really un, on board and really feel like they can handle this situation with their child. And, you know, not that there's not some sadness or loss involved, but they're really, you know, they want to do the best thing. They, they really feel pretty competent. And the biggest challenge is dealing with other people and often family members, mm -hmm. relatives, who either say, I have this perfect treatment for you, and I read this book, and it says if you do A, B, and C, your child is going to be cured. Or conversely, they say, there's nothing wrong with him. He'll mm. be fine. He's going to learn to talk. He's going to learn to walk, whatever the deficit is. Um, just don't worry about it. You know, you're crazy for worrying. You're going to get all kinds of 
unsolicited, maybe sometimes solicited, but a lot of unsolicited advice from your family and maybe from friends too, is to really just try to cope with that on, you know, realize that, you know, and you and your providers working together or your educators know what's best for your child and to try to deal with um, Mm -hmm. your family's responses in whatever way you can. Um, because they're they're you have to know they're trying to help and they don't always know the best thing to do mm-hmm. and they're they're experiencing some sadness and loss as well so I think that's one of the things that um, families have a lot of trouble with is their extended families mm. or friends that have you know all kinds that of things to well. tell them yeah, yeah that mean well but don't always do the right thing and it's not always helpful so I think you should just get everyone to say to their families that they should stop and play the air guitar. I think that stop is and play the air quote. guitar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we should get that made on t-shirts for a podcast. <laughs> stop That's and right. play the air guitar. Yeah, there you yeah. go. That's what we should call this episode. Stop and play the air guitar. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so thank you very much, Naomi. It's been brilliant to talk to you, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon in real life. And hopefully, it'll be in London or Massachusetts or even Scotland because we've we've had fun in all three of those places. I know. No, I can't wait. I can't wait to see you in person. So thank you very much. Thanks so much to Naomi for her really important advice and the laughter for the last 45 minutes. It's been great to talk to her and we look forward to seeing her again in person when she can come back over to London. So we hope you found that episode useful and helpful. And if you think that we might be able to help you and your child, then we are available on www.blueskyautism.com or at www.playtotalk.co.uk The world could fall down It's gonna be okay The sun could go out We're gonna be okay If all the blue skies hate to